Chapter One of the Golden Book of Dutch Navigators. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett, Melbourne, Australia. The Golden Book of the Dutch Navigators by Hendrik Willem van Loom. Chapter One Jan Huygen van Linschoten. Part 1. It was the year of our Lord, 1579, and the 11th of the glorious revolution of Holland against Spain. Brielle had been taken by a handful of hungry sea beggars. Harlem and Narden had been murdered out by a horde of infuriated Spanish regulars. Alkmaar, little Alkmaar, hidden behind lakes, canals, open fields with low willows and marshes, had been besieged, had turned the welcome waters of the Zyder Zee upon the enemy, and had driven the enemy away. Alva, the man of iron who was to destroy this people of butter between his steel gloves, had left the stage of his unsavoury operations in disgrace. The butter had dribbled away between his fingers. Another Spanish governor had appeared, another failure, then a third one. Him, the climate and the brilliant days of his youth had killed. But in the heart of Holland, William of the House of Nassau, heir to the rich princes of Orange, destined to be known as the silent, the cunning one. This same William, broken in health, broken in money, but high of courage, marshalled his forces and with the despair of a last chance, made ready to clear his adopted country of the hated foreign domination. Everywhere in the little terrestrial triangle of this newest of republics, there was the activity of men who had just escaped destruction by the narrowest of margins. They had faith in their own destiny. Anyone who can go through an open rebellion against the mightiest of monarchs and come out successfully deserves the commendation of the Almighty. The Hollanders had succeeded. Their harbours, the lungs of the country, were free once more and could breathe the fresh air of the open sea and of commercial prosperity. On the land, the Spaniard still held his own, but on the water, the Hollander was master of the situation. The ocean, which had made his country what it was, which had built the marshes upon which he lived, which provided the highway across which he brought home his riches, was open to his enterprise. He must go out in search of further adventure. Thus far, he had been the common carrier of Europe. His ships had brought the grain from the rich Baltic provinces to the hungry waste of Spain. His fishermen had supplied the fasting table of Catholic humanity with the delicacy of pickled herring. From Venice and later on from Lisbon, he had carried the products of the Orient to the farthest corners of the Scandinavian peninsula. It was time for him to expand. The role of middleman is a good role for modest and humble folk who make a decent living by taking a few pennies here and collecting a few pennies there. But the chosen people of God must follow their destiny upon the broad highway of international commerce wherever they can. Therefore, the Hollander must go to India. It was easily said. 
but how was one to get there? Jan Huygen van Lincholten was born in the year 1563 in the town of Haarlem. As a small boy, he was taken to Enkhuizen. At the present time, Enkhuizen is hardly more than a country village. 300 years ago, it was a big town with high walls, deep moats, strong towers, and a local board of aldermen who knew how to make the people keep the laws and to fear God. It had several churches where the doctrines of the great master Johannes Calvinus were taught with precision and without omitting a single piece of brimstone or extinguishing a single flame of an ever-gaping hell. It had orphan asylums and hospitals. It had a fine jail and a school with a horny-handed tyrant who taught the ABCs and the principles of immediate obedience with due reference to that delightful text about the spoiled child and the twigs of a birch tree. Outside of the city, when once you had passed the gallows with its rattling chains and aggressive ravens, there were miles and miles of green pasture, but upon one side there was the blue water of the quiet Zyder Zee. Here small vessels could approach the welcome harbour, lined on both sides with gabled storehouses. It is true that when the tide was very low, the harbour looked like a big muddy trough. But these flat-bottomed contraptions rested upon the mud with ease and comfort, and the next tide would again lift them up, ready for farther peregrinations. Over the entire scene there hung the air of prosperity. A restless energy was in the air. On all sides there was evidence of the gospel of enterprise. It was this enterprise that collected the money to build the ships. It was this enterprise, combined with nautical cunning, that pushed these vessels to the ends of the European continent in quest of freight and trade. It was this enterprise that turned the accumulating riches into fine mansions and good pictures and gave a first-class education to all boys and girls. It walked proudly along the broad streets where the best families lived. It stalked cheerfully through the narrow alleys when the sailor came back to his wife and children. It followed the merchant into his counting room, and it played with the little boys who frequented the quays and grew up in a blissful atmosphere of tallow, tar, gin, spices, dried fish, and fantastic tales of foreign adventure. And it played the very mischief with our young hero. For when Jan Huygen was sixteen years old and had learned his three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, he shipped as a cabin boy to Spain and said farewell to his native country to return after many years as the missing link in the chain of commercial explorations, the one and only man who knew the road to India. Here the industrious reader interrupts me. How could this boy go to Spain when his country was at war with its master, King Philip? Indeed, this statement needs an explanation. Spain in the 16th century was a magnificent example of the failure of imperial expansion minus a knowledge of elementary economics. Here we had a country which owned the better part of the world. It was rich beyond words and it derived its opulence from every quarter of the globe, 
For centuries, a steady stream of bullion flowed into Spanish coffers. Alas, it flowed out of them just as rapidly, for Spain, with all its foreign glory, was miserably poor at home. Her people had never been taught to work. The soil did not provide food enough for the population of the large peninsula. Every biscuit, so to speak, every loaf of bread, had to be imported from abroad. Unfortunately, the grain business was in the hands of these same Dutch Calvinists whose nasal theology greatly offended His Majesty King Philip. Therefore, during the first years of the rebellion, the harbours of the Spanish kingdom had been closed against these unregenerate singers of psalms, whereupon Spain went hungry and was threatened with starvation. Economic necessity conquered religious prejudice. The ports of King Philip's domain once more were opened to the grain ships of the Hollanders and remained open until the end of the war. The Dutch trader never bothered about the outward form of things, provided he got his profits. He knew how to take a hint. Therefore, when he came to a Spanish port, he hoisted the Danish flag or sailed under the colours of Hamburg and Bremen. There was still the difficulty of the language, but the Spaniard was made to understand that this guttural combination of sounds represented diverse Scandinavian tongues. The tactful custom officers of his most Catholic majesty let it go at that, and cheerfully welcomed these heretics, without whom they could not have fed their own people. When Jan Huygen left his own country, he had no definite plans beyond a career adventure. For then, as he wrote many years later, when you come home, you have something to tell your children when you get old. In 1579, he left Enquizen, and in the winter of the next year, he arrived in Spain. First of all, he did some clerical work in the town of Seville, where he learned the Spanish language. Next, he went to Lisbon, where he became familiar with Portuguese. He seems to have been a likeable boy, who did cheerfully whatever he found to do, but watched with a careful eye the chance to meet with his next adventure. After three years of a roving existence, with rare good luck he met Vincente da Fonseca, a Dominican who had just been appointed Archbishop of Goa in the Indies. Jan Huygen obtained a position as general literary factotum to the new dignitary, and also acted as purser for the captain of the ship. At the age of 20, he was an integral member of a bona fide expedition to the mysterious Indies. Through his account of this trip, printed in 1595, the Dutch traders at last learned to know the route to the Indies. The expedition left Lisbon on Good Friday of the year 1583 with 40 ships. During the first few weeks, nothing happened. Nothing ever happened during the first weeks on any of those expeditions. The trouble invariably began after the first rough weather. In this instance, everything went well until the end of April, when the coast of Guinea had been reached. Then the fleet entered a region of squalls and severe rainstorms. The rain collected on the decks and ran down the hatchways. 
A dozen times or so a day the fleet had to come to a stop, while all hands bailed out the water which filled the holds. When it did not rain, the sun beat down mercilessly, and soon the atmosphere of the soaked wood became unpleasant. To make things worse, the drinking water was no longer fresh and smelled so badly that one could not drink it without closing the unfortunate nose that came near the cup. On the whole, the printed work of Jan Huygen does not show him as an admirer of the Portuguese or their system of navigation. In all his writing, he gives us the impression of a very sober-minded young Hollander with a lot of common sense. Portugal had then been a colonial power for many years and showed unmistakable signs of deterioration. The people had been too prosperous. They were no longer willing to defend their own interests against other and younger nations. They still exercised their Indian monopoly because it had been theirs for so long a time that no one remembered anything to the contrary, but the end of things had come. Upon every page of Jan Huygens' book we find the same evidence of bad organisation, little jealousies, spite, disobedience, cowardice and lack of concerted action. When only a few weeks from home, this fleet of 40 ships encountered a single small French vessel. Part of the Portuguese crew of the fleet was sick. The others made ready to flee at once. After a few hours, it was seen that the Frenchman had no evil intentions and continued his way without a closer inspection of his enemies. Then peace returned to the fleet of Fonseca. A few days later, the ship reached the equator. The customary initiation of the new sailors, followed by the usual festivities and a first-class drunken row, took place. The captain was run down and trampled upon by his men. Tables and chairs were upset, and the crew fought one another with knives. This quarrel might have ended in a general murder, but for the interference of the archbishop, who threw himself among the crazy sailors, and with a threat of excommunication drove them back to work. Half a dozen were locked up, others were whipped, and the ships continued their voyage in this happy-go-lucky fashion. Then it appeared that nobody knew exactly where they were. Observations finally showed that the fleet was still 50 miles west of the Cape of Good Hope. As a matter of fact, they had passed the Cape several days before, but didn't discover their error until a week later. Then they sailed northward until they reached Mozambique, where they spent two weeks in order to give the crew a rest and to repair the damages of the equatorial fight. On the 20th of August, they continued their voyage until the serpents which they saw in the water showed them that they were approaching the coast of India. From that time on, luck was with the expedition. The ships reached the coast near the town of destination. After a remarkably short passage of only five months and thirteen days, the fleet landed safely in Goa. Jan Huygen was very proud of the record of his ship. Only thirty people had died on the voyage. It is true that all the people on board had been under a doctor's care, and every one of the sailors and passengers had been bled a few times, but thirty men buried during so long a voyage was a mere trifle. In the 16th century, 
If 50% of the men returned from an Indian voyage, the trip was considered successful. The next five years, Jan Huygen spent in Goa with his ecclesiastical master. He was entrusted with a great deal of confidential work and became thoroughly familiar with all the affairs of the colony. In Goa, he heard wonderful tales about the great Chinese empire many weeks to the north. He began to collect maps for an expedition to that distant land, but lack of funds made him put it off, and he never went far beyond the confines of the small Portuguese settlement. Unfortunately, at the end of five years, the archbishop died, and Jan Huygen was without a job. As he had news that his father had died, he now decided to go back to Inkhuizen to see what he could do for his mother. Accordingly, in January of the year 1589, he sailed for home on board the good ship Santa Maria. It was the same old story of bad management. The ships of the return fleet were all loaded too heavily. The handling of the cargo was left entirely to shipbrokers, and these worthies had developed a noble system of graft. Merchandise was loaded according to a regular tariff of bribes. If you were willing to pay enough, your goods went neatly into the hold. If you did not give a certain percentage to the brokers, your bags and bales were stowed away somewhere on a corner of a wharf, exposed to the rain and sea. Very likely, too, the first storm would wash your valuable possessions overboard. When the Santa Maria left, her decks were stacked high with disorderly masses of colonial products. The sailors on duty had to make a path through this accumulated stuff, and the captain lacked the authority to put his own ship in order. A few days out, a cabin boy fell overboard. The sea was quiet, and it would have been possible to save the child, but when the crew ran for a boat, it was found to be filled with heavy boxes. By the time the boat was at last lowered, the boy had drowned. The Santa Maria sailed direct for the Cape. There it fell in with another vessel called the San Thome, and it now became a matter of pride which ship could round the Cape first. Severe western winds made the Santa Maria wait several days. The San Thome, however, ventured forth to brave the gale. When finally the storm had abated and the Santa Maria had reached the Atlantic Ocean, the bodies and pieces of wreckage which floated upon the water told what had happened to the other vessel. This, however, was only the beginning of trouble. On the 5th of March, the Santa Maria was almost lost. Her rudder broke and it could not be repaired. A storm accompanied by a tropical display of thunder and lightning broke loose. For more than 48 hours, the ship was at the mercy of the waves. The crew spent the time on deck, absorbed in prayer, when little electric flames began to appear on the masts and yards. The so-called St. Elmo's fire, a spooky phenomenon to all sailors of all times, they felt sure that the end of the world had come. The captain commanded all his men to pray the Salvo Corpo Sancto, and this was done with great demonstrations of fervour. The celestial fireworks, however, did not abate. On the contrary, the crew witnessed the appearance of a five-pointed crown, which showed itself upon the mainmast, 
and was hailed with cries of the crown of the Holy Virgin. After this final electric display, the storm went on its way. In his sober fashion, Jan Huygen had looked on. He did not take much stock in this sudden piety and called it a lot of useless noise. Then he watched the men repairing the rudder. It was discovered that there was no anvil on board the ship and a gun was used as an anvil. A pair of bellows was improvised out of some old skins. With this contrivance, some sort of steering gear was finally rigged up and the voyage was continued. After that, except for occasional and very sudden squalls, when all the sails had to be lowered to save them from being blown to pieces, the Santa Maria was past her greatest danger, though the heavy seas caused by a prolonged storm proved to be another obstacle. No further progress was possible until the ship had been lightened. For this purpose, the large boat and all its valuable contents were simply thrown overboard. End of chapter 1, part 1